Hey, Michael here. Uh, welcome to Acquisitions Anonymous, the internet's number one podcast about small business buying, selling, and operating. Uh, today, we did something a little bit different. It's just me, uh, and we have a guest, uh, and his name is Michael Arietta uh, from Garden City uh, is the name of his private equity firm, and it's really unique in terms of what they've done, and I spent time digging in with him to understand you know, the power of how he's used storytelling um, and his own personal story as a way to put together his firm, uh, how they found their first deals, how he went from zero uh, businesses purchased to one, uh, and how that transition from W2 to actual business owner and whole co-operator went. So um, really fun, dynamic discussion and uh, enjoyed it a lot. Here is the episode. Hey, Michael here. Want to talk to you about today's sponsor for the episode, uh, which is cloudbookkeeping.com. Uh, so cloud bookkeeping is actually run by my neighbor, Charlie. So I've met him in person and uh, can attest that he's a real human being and a good person. Uh, and what cloud bookkeeping does is offer a full suite of bookkeeping services uh, all in the cloud uh, for you around QuickBooks and other technologies that you're using as a small business owner. Uh, so if you're interested in getting the bookkeeping part of running a business off of your plate and focusing on running your business, uh, Charlie and his team are one to call. Um, they can put together a bunch of other stuff in terms of helping you manage and grow your business besides just bookkeeping, um, sophisticated reporting, uh, definitely helping you get your QuickBooks online set up in the right way, uh, and a number of things around payroll as well. So uh, definitely know them and recommend them. If you want to find out more about cloud bookkeeping, um, you can go to their website at cloudbookkeeping.com. Uh, reach out to Charlie. I know many of you have uh, and see if he can help you uh, make your running your business easier and more fun by uh, letting them help with a lot of the bookkeeping solutions. So, uh, and when you call, mention this podcast, uh, it would help us uh, and help Charlie know uh, that we're supporting him as well. So thanks a bunch and cloudbookkeeping.com uh, as the sponsor for today's episode. Well, cool. Well, Michael, thanks for being here. I'd love to just, you know, I think we're going to do something fun today, which is instead of doing our normal format, uh, I'm just going to grill you with questions because I think your background and the stuff you're doing is very interesting for the type of audience that we have. You know, it's a, it's a group of people that are typically either business nerds or they're, you know, interested in buying a business at some point. So I think you've done a ton of those type of things and you're very thoughtful and uh, would love to just kind of wrap with you about that and, and share your wisdom with folks and, um, give you a chance to tell your story, which I think is really cool. But maybe maybe start with just give us an introduction for like a minute of who you are and how you got to where you are yeah, today. Thanks, Michael. Looking forward to our chat today. Um, who I am and how I got to where I am today. Um, I was born in Miami, Florida uh, from two really hardworking, lower income uh, uh, parents. My father started selling flan, um, like the Spanish custard, you know. Um, and then afterwards, he started moving furniture and then he was furniture salesman his whole life. My mother, she worked in retail stores. Um, and so very, very humble beginnings. First uh, language was Spanish. Had a severe stutter problem when I was five years old. Kind of led all the way through my whole life almost. Uh, because of that stutter problem, I was able to get a disability grant from the state of Florida, which got me good education. Um, and to my parents' credit, my my two sisters and I were the first in our entire family heritage, family tree to ever go to college. So um that was kind of my upbringing. Um, my father got really sick when I was in my early teens, and I started selling Cutco knives to help ease the financial burden of my family. So I started selling a ton of Cutco knives, waking up at 
wee hours of the morning asking teachers to go to the bathroom in the stalls. And I would make cold calls to my friend's parents. They'd be like, you should be in the class right now. And I'm like, I know, but can I come over tomorrow, you know, after school to sell you knives? And so I started making six figures a year when I was a junior in high school, um, made more when I was a senior and just continued that all the way through college. I sold Cutco every summer. Um, I Googled the most, the richest, most expensive zip code in the country. And it was this place in New Jersey across, across the Hudson River in Manhattan called uh, Bourbon County. So I moved there and sold Cutco knives every summer. So that was my upbringing was sales, 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 hustle, grit, building rapport with people, connecting with people. I was a kid in the candy store being in these ridiculous homes and mansions coming from where I grew up. We moved 15 times in 17 years biggest house we lived in was probably 1700 square feet, um, a lot of apartments and whatnot. So I was just giddy about the opportunity. Um, got into technology afterwards. Uh, I was in technology for over a decade. Uh, first startup got bought by Dell. Um, I became chief of staff to one of the uh, leaders at Dell. After that, I joined a startup called DocuSign, um, which now everyone knows. We grew that from uh, less than 100 people to by the time I left, we were over five to 6,000 people. Um, I was a global vice president and general manager of enterprise sales. And then um, I, I said, if money were no object, what would I do? And given my background where I came from of service working parents and being raised in this environment of service workers that are just viewed as a cog in a wheel, no purpose, no mission, very little dignity that we provide them. I, as I grew up, I was like, this is the backbone of our country. I mean, this is the framework that our great country was built upon was these operating businesses. What would it look like if my wife and I just took some of our DocuSign equity and started buying some of these cash flow entities? I mean, it'll provide obviously a return, but more importantly, it'll provide a platform to like impact people's lives and provide really good jobs. And that led um, to me telling a couple mentors and friends that were like, hey, I'll give you money. I'm like, if you give me money, how do I make money on your money? <laughs> and that naturally birthed a private equity fund called Garden City Companies. And we we buy small, mid-sized, blue and white collar family-owned companies from owners that are seeking retirement. So that's what we do. We have five in our portfolio now after three years. And um, it's, yeah, it's it's special. I get to wake up every day and do my dream job. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, so I'm curious, how do you, first of all, that was amazing. Like, like I, I talked to a lot of people and, you know, the percentage of people that can articulate their story in a way that, resonates with other folks like that was just really i mean it was good i'm sure you've had a lot of practice because you raised a private equity fund and I've, I've you know i've done the same thing where you have to like sell yourself and and hit on the right buttons like were you always were you born able to do that or do you feel like that was that level of what you just did like was that a, a learned skill like and i don't mean to insult it it's not i know you're not being fake i'm just saying like man people most people can't articulate themselves the way you just did like how did that come about? Um, no, it, it was definitely a learned skill. Um, from when I was, I mean, from when I started speaking to people again, selling Cucko at 17 until probably when I was, I don't know, 26, 27. During those 10 years, I, I like literally it would be hard for me to speak, like stutter. So when I would cold call people, if I was cold calling Michael, if I was cold calling you, I'd be like, um, Michael, hi, this is uh, Mike. Um, so that would be it. Like it would be extremely difficult. Many times I'd have to hang up because words couldn't come out. So to do what I just did is a gift from God itself, you know? So it would just come from a lot of practicing, a lot of sharing my story with others, a lot of, uh, investor conversations, friend conversations. Um, so it's come over time a lot. Yeah. I mean, have you done anything to get 
feedback on it or was it just mostly trial and error? Like how did you, how did you think about going about developing that story? I stopped giving a rip about what other people would think. And I, um, I call it the gun show. It's like every time we meet people, two people have their guns up and they're all about like how amazing I am and how strong I am and how I've never experienced any burden or heartache or anything. And everything's just up and to the right. And I'm like, that's total BS. Um, and I've had a lot of heartaches and this is my story and my family wasn't the greatest growing up because of our financial situation. And I wasn't the greatest at school. And the only reason why we were able to go there was because of my stutter and my dad has severe uh, health problems. And there was just a bunch of stuff. And it's, I think what people like about it, it's vulnerability, it's authenticity, it's real, it's, it's, it's raw. Right. Um, so I think probably what you picked up on my story more than anything was that you felt that it was real. That's it. Authentic. More, I mean, you probably didn't even pick up like Dell, whatever, the DocuSign, whatever, but it was like, man, like I just captured the nemesis of who this man is. Right. And I feel like people that I speak to, they just hold back so much and they just give you this veneer. Right. So when I ask you, I'm like, tell me who you are. Like right here, I'm in Park City right now. And I was getting fitted the other day and I'm having an hour and a half experience with this person. I'm like, tell me who you are. And they wouldn't give it, right? They wouldn't give it. Oh, I was born here. Now I've been working here now for six years. You know, I'm like, no, get, like, give me all of you, right? Like, like be vulnerable, right? But people are scared to show them true, their true self. Fear. I think, I think the biggest thing that, um, I think the biggest, biggest, biggest enemy that we deal with on a daily basis is fear. I think we are deathly afraid. I think we are little boys and little girls running around frantically scared. We're scared that we're not enough. We're scared that we don't have enough. We're scared that we're going to mess up. We're scared that we're not going to raise our children right. We're scared that we're going to make the wrong decisions, that we're not going to be a success. We're scared that we're not going to measure up to our parents expectations or our neighbors or our kids, friends at school or all this stuff. We're just constantly running around frantically scared rather than living in freedom, right? It's like fear versus freedom, right? Um, and so I think when we do that, we're just scared that we're going to expose ourselves and people are going to view us and see who we really are versus actually being realizing like we're all messy. Like my, I read my kids' book called like, you know, you're messy. And it's like, we're all messy humans. And that's the beauty in it, right? Is that together we get to show like you're messed up and you're messed up and you yelled at your wife when you shouldn't have. And you did this, your child, you shouldn't have. You messed up on this business deal and it's okay. And like, we're all imperfect humans, right? Um, and so we don't live in a society that does that. We live in a society that just shows everything up and to the right, how great we are and how we never mess up. And those are the people that we should listen to on podcasts. And those are the people we should read their business books, right? Is all the best. But instead, it's like what well, my mentor told me was this, Michael, um, our success makes us respect one another. Our vulnerability makes us love one another. So it's like you could respect other people based on their successes, but you only come to love other people based on their vulnerability. Yeah, it's really cool. It's really cool. Well, I mean, and so not to switch gears too much, but one thing, you know, I looked at I looked at the website for your private equity fund for your, and it's, it's an evergreen fund, right? That's the way you guys are structured. Yeah. We buy and don't intend to ever sell these great companies. Yeah. And then super cool. I mean, one of the things when I first looked at it and you know, you, you and I got connected because you, because referral. And uh, when I looked at it, you know, usually when somebody refers, you, you kind of look at their website and see, okay, does this pass the smell test? And one of the things that was so interesting was like, you're what you've got this list of LPs. It's just like, like kind of stupid, cool. Um, you know, and it's like a combination of like professional athletes and like senior, 
uh, you know, senior level executives at all these high power companies, the, you know, so I was just like, wow, that's like super interesting. Cause like everybody that I tend to work with is just a nobody like me. And, uh, so I was just curious, like, how did that like come about? Like what, what was it about putting together your situation that was like, you suddenly have this, like, I don't know, it's like an all-star list of people on the website. And then how, how do they feel about kind of your story and what, what brought them in, I guess, is me. I'm, so how'd you do it? I'm very curious. Um, it's very similar to back in the day with Cutco, right? It's like people back in the, with any sales, they focus on the sale, right? That's all they do. They focus on the here and now. They don't focus on the tomorrow, right? And so they'll spend all of their energy, all of their credibility on the sale. And they'll never think about tomorrow. And so when I did Cutco, and if I was selling you and your wife, I would be like, hey, look, I'll show you what I have. I'll tell you who I am. If you decide to buy or not, that's on you. But I am going to make an ask of you. If I do meet your expectations, if you are impressed or blown away, or um, if you admire what I'm trying to do, right? My only ask is that you consider inviting me or introducing me to other people, like referring me to other people, because that's my livelihood. That's how I'll keep on going. That's how the dominoes will keep going. So um, I would completely take a sledgehammer to the uh, burden and to the, um, yeah, to the weight that you would feel like I'm getting sold. I'm getting sold. I'm getting sold. And I would remove that from you. Be like, I actually don't care if you are, but the one, the one thing I will say is if I do a good job, will you at least consider introducing me to friends? Right. And they'd be like, yeah, yeah, I could do that. That's not a hard ask. Right. And so in that same exact manner of when I was 17, right now, it's the same exact thing with friends or investors or whatever. It's like, I have nothing to ask of you. If you want to invest in garden city, great. You could invest in Garden City. If you want to do this deal with me, great. You could do this deal with me, but let's build a friendship. And naturally, when you build a friendship with people, they're like, you've got to meet X, Y, and Z. You've got to meet X, Y, and Z because they just feel there's no transaction. They feel there's no pressure. They just feel like there's this authentic relationship that actually what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to give, 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 give. I'm trying to out give them as much as I stinking can, you know? And so what they feel in response to that is like, I want to give, right? Like I want to give. Um, and so that's where it came from, Michael. It just came from, it came from me having a mentor and talking to him. And he's like, you know, you got to speak to this other guy. And then that guy's like, you got to speak to this other guy. And that guy's like, you got to speak to this other guy. And that's how it came. The other thing is when launching Garden City, I was very, very, very particular about who I wanted to be part of this journey and who I didn't. Um, I did not want people to be part of this journey that didn't value service workers. I didn't want people to be part of this journey that didn't want to see companies to be a light on a hill. Like, I wanted people that when I shared what my purpose was, right, of creating these environments where workers could thrive and prosper and flourish and have dignity and respect and upward mobility, when I say that, did they just go on to the next thing and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's your IRR? Are you trying to buy and flip these? You know, what's the fun life? Blah, blah. Or were they like, yes, I, I love businesses like Chick-fil-A or Costco or Publix or whatever it is, right? I love those. I believe that that's good business. It's not a nice to have, but it's a competitive mode. Those are the people I wanted part of the company. And when you latch those people on to what you're doing, to your why, they naturally get excited. They want to naturally help expand the mission. And they're like, you got to speak to X. X is all about this too, right? He's exact. He's passionate. He and his wife are obsessed with good business, are obsessed with redemptive work environments, right? So that's where it comes. It all starts with the why. All starts with the why, not the how.
Yeah. And as I, I mean, as I look back, you know, I raised a couple of venture capital funds going on 10, 12 years ago here in San Antonio. And like the majority of our investors were in it because they wanted to see that happen in San Antonio. There hadn't been a VC fund here for 30 years before that. And, you know, I think it's so smart. Like, how do you figure out like the, the emotional connection you can make with people first and then say, okay, well, I'm going to build, I'm going to build on that. And you end up with missionaries rather than, you know, I think mercenaries surrounding your, your environment and your fund or your effort, which I think is super cool. One of our biggest things that I focus on is how do we cultivate a collective of mission aligned people, right? So we have our 55 investors, right? Governors, senators, professional athletes, fortune 50 CEOs, all these different people. How do we cultivate a family and really make it a collective of that, right? And and so we have a, an annual shareholder summit every 18 months, right? And I'm like, who can I invite to that? So I'm like, do you know who would be a great person here? I want to hear about humility. Who would be the number one person to talk about humility? What about the CEO of Boeing that two planes went down under his watch as CEO, right? In the Philippines or Indonesia, I forgot where it was, somewhere there. Um, and what about him talking about leading through failure and humility? So I reached out to him. I said, what we're about, what we're trying to create or why of trying to create the world's most caring holding company, right? He was gladly able to come speak. Right. It didn't cost a dollar. He wants to be part of this. Right. I was like, who would be a great, great, great business leader that came through a family owned business? Right. They could also talk to the political climate. Right. That it's not left versus right, but it's like it's actually all of us being united. So I reached out to Governor Bill Haslam. Right. That was an eight year governor of Tennessee that he sold a flying or pilot flying J to Berkshire Hathaway. Right. That owns the Cleveland Browns and the Nashville Predators. Right. Reached out to him. And he's like, I would gladly come speak to this. So when you ask. The- so can I interrupt? Can I interrupt you? Yeah. So you went from like zero to five, like Governor Bill Haslett shows up. Like, how did you you said you reached out? Like, how did you actually do that? Like, what was the what did you just like cold email him? Did you get a referral? Did you send a letter? A smoke signals? Uh, FedEx? <laughs> I'm a huge, 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 huge fan of warm introductions, uh, and I'm and and I'm a big fan of casting out a vision. And naturally, when you cast out a vision, somehow I call it God. Other people call it the world or whatever it is. When you cast out a vision, somehow things just start lining up towards that vision, right? And so I've always had this vision of everyone's talking to me about Governor Bill Haslam, and I've never asked anyone for an introduction or anything like that in my life. But everyone's like, "Man, he sold his family business for billions of dollars." You know, he's he's strong about his beliefs. He's strong about leaving this country. He's strong about caring for the service worker. And so, um, me and a gentleman are, are are in the process of writing a book about how to sell your, your small business. And so he was so I was talking about launching this at our shareholder summit. Um, this author and I, I was just telling him, I was like, I would love like for a keynote speaker to be Governor Bill Haslam. He's like, I know Governor Bill Haslam. I'll gladly put you in touch. So he just put me in touch via text and we met for dinner, me, him and his wife um, a couple of weeks ago. And I told him, I was like, I'd love to have you come speak and, and come out and meet our investors and hear what we're all about. And he was like, I love what you're doing. It's not just private equity, buy a company, get leverage, buy it and flip it, go on to the next, all for making money. Like we have a short life to live. People want to live for a purpose. Yeah, no, I hear you. Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, so let's maybe go back to an inflection point in your life that I think was really relevant to the people that listen to our podcast. So you're working at DocuSign um, and it was DocuSign, right? Not EchoSign? Definitely DocuSign. 
<laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> Sorry, I have a, I have the memory of a goldfish, so that's all my problem. Um, so you you're working at DocuSign, like you you've made some money, um, but but not like stupid island money at this point. But you're a W two employee, right? And and walk me through kind of that transition of how you go from teammate working at a startup to deciding to buy like a business, and like what was that? What was that? thinking like and what were what tactically did you do to go make that happen wonderful question um it's one that always gets me really emotional that i hope i never lose the lose lose the moment of the feeling of what that season was like um because yeah so so i thought i mean the goal at DocuSign was we're going to be a unicorn we're going to be a unicorn like we're going to be a one billion dollar business right this was in 2014 um, and, and, uh, we, we achieved that unicorn status and we were filing our S one to go public and a large tech company, you know, came to us, uh, during that S one filing and they tried to acquire us. And I remember going home to my wife and being like, sweetie, they offered us $2.9 billion. I was like, if that happens, I'm going to most definitely do the work of my dreams. I'm going to just like do this. I'm going to buy dry cleaners and car washes and janitorial companies because if that happens, you know, we could just live off our, live off our interests if that transaction happens. Right. And that transaction didn't happen. And then we went public and then it, we went public at like 6 billion and it hit 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 60, 60 billion. Right. I mean, it was bananas, right. During COVID. And what happened was greed, if you want to be honest with you, it was greed. It's seen every 90 days, just stock going up and up and up and up. And so I was delaying what I said was my passion and what I said I would do just because I'm like, oh, another 90 days to see what happens to the stock in another 90 days. Right. So you're talking about to make sure I understand you're talking about you're on that golden handcuff ride of the stock is going way up and you've got your you know, what employee number were you at DocuSign? Like how early were you? Less, uh, probably less than a hundred. Yeah. So you're making a lot of money. Um, I won't do like some other podcast host to be like, okay, let's talk about exactly how much, but anyway, so good. You're watching the money and it's like every time the stock doubles, like your, your net worth, you know, potentially from that stock is, is going along with it. So, but you said, so I understand like what kept you there as opposed to going after your dreams was the golden handcuffs of this kind of like, oh man, I just, increase my net worth 20% yesterday, that kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. It. That's exactly it. And it's, it's, um, on one hand, it's what the world does, right? It's like, Oh, well, you know, and, and, and to your point, I knew I was going to do garden city since, since July, 2018. So, right. So we went public in like 2017 in 2018. I knew I was going to do garden city. I didn't leave till February, 2020. Right. But the way that I saw it was every 90 days. I'm like, what I just made is more than I'll make in, a year doing Garden City in the last 90 days, right? So just another 90, in another 90, in another 90. But then it hit when it was um, basically January of 2020. And I was just like, I had this deep, deep, deep calling conviction that I just really feel called. I feel this calling. I felt like there was a wind behind my back and doors were being flung wide, right? That there was just this clear calling of like, you are called to go buy small, mid-sized companies. And I just felt like it would be a misservice to myself um, to continue to ignore that calling. Um, and so February 14th, Valentine's Day of 2020, um, I left DocuSign. And by the end of that month, because I was already starting to have conversations with some of my mentors and friends, we, we did our first close of like 25 million, 
right? Um, and so, and then COVID hit three days later on March 3rd or whatever it was. So you went out, so you, you went out to go raise the fund before you had a deal. You just had a thesis at that point. Was that kind of the, the approach? Just a thesis, no deck, just a company name, never done private equity. Didn't know anything about investment bankers, intermediaries, proprietary channel, diligence. Um, didn't even know what lower middle market was. Didn't know anything about, didn't even know what getting leverage from banks looked like. Zero, 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 zero. I just had a deep why. I just had a deep conviction that if these businesses that exist out there could make one, two, five, ten million dollars a year, right? And they are probably not radically caring for their people. And they're probably not implementing great Silicon Valley DocuSign-like technology to drive efficiencies. And they probably, if they're B2B companies, they're probably not, they probably don't have world-class executive introductions to the C-suite. If they don't have that, and they're making millions of dollars per year, what would it look like if you did care for the people and you didn't infuse technology and you did have strategic introductions? That was the whole thesis. Yeah. So you have, at this point, you're leaving. You have, at this point, you've built up a pretty good network of folks that you've known through DocuSign. You've developed some incredible skills um, as dem- as you're demonstrating today. Like I, I can just hear it and everything you're talking and how you talk about things. So, but you're going to raise this first fund um, and you're doing it, potentially the, the harder way, which is you're raising funds before you have deals. Like what, what sort of things did you do to make sure you could go raise that money? Did, do you have an outside, outsized kind of GP commit? Did you find an anchor who would, you know, you cut, cut that person a special deal to be the anchor kind of deal for like, how did you go about putting that together? Given at this point, like you're just, you know, no offense, but just another middle market buyout group, like <laughs> kind of, you know, with a, with a better thesis and a better story and like a great. I'm a, at this point, I'm a guy that did really good selling Cutco from 17 to 21. And, and I, I was a manager at Dell and then I got a chief of staff at Dell and I, and I was lucky enough to ride the DocuSign train from a startup to 5,000 people. I am. That's what I well, the good news is uh, with on this podcast, not only do I throw in the questions, I also throw in some insults. So you're welcome. <laughs> you, can have, I throw, you can have those for free. <laughs> anyway, I didn't mean it that way, but like, you see what I'm saying? It's like, like what, so what did you, you know, and, and frankly, the reason I'm, I'm asking kind of this line of questioning is like, people are most interested in understanding how you did it because they want to copy you. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, what'd you tell us what you did? Yeah. It, Look, the only insult I could give you is I have better hair than you do. Okay, Michael, that's my insult. Well, hey, this is by choice, man. <laughs> um, so it, it really comes down to there was over a decade of building relational capital. And that's what it was. I mean, I was a chief of staff at Dell. So I was traveling all around the world 300 days a year with the CEO and all the executives at Dell, going to World Economic Forum in Davos every year, right? Meeting all these different people. And so I built a lot of relational capital. Then it was DocuSign. I worked for a multi-billionaire named Keith Kroc. He started Ariba, chairman of the board of trustees at Purdue, Angie's List, first investor of Box, Yelp, right? I was his right-hand guy. I was an extension of him. So every single person that he knew and then invested in DocuSign from day one, they became my friends. I would go into Chicago and stay at the CEO of McDonald's house. And then I would go and stay at the CEO of FedEx or Office Depot or Dell or Samsung or Salesforce or Microsoft, all these people. So it was relational capital, relational capital. Me working at DocuSign, working at DocuSign, putting in the good work, you know? Um, my mentor was a CEO of Intel. He, he still is today, Pat Gelsinger. He was my first investor, right? So it was all these relational capital that I just kept putting in. 
And then when I went off to go start my thing, these people knew me from 2011, right? So they knew me for almost 10 years. And so they knew that I was consistent. They knew that I was honest. They knew that I worked hard. They knew that I would show up. They knew that I was at least humble and try to be smart, right? So when I called Pat Gelsinger, this is the way it worked at Intel. And at the time he was a CEO of VMware. I'm like, Pat, I'm, I'm not going to do tech again. Like, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to follow my passion. There's these small businesses. I don't know. You probably see them. They probably service your headquarters or your home or whatever. They're all around us. They make a lot of money. We could buy them at a reasonable valuation and they cash flow every year. So with your money through cash flow, I'll pay you back in a couple of years. Then every year after that, it's called mailbox money, Pat. I'll just be coming in mailbox money. So the return will be there. I don't know if it'll be 15 or 20 or 25 or 30% cash on cash returns, but it will be there because these businesses have been around for a really long time, right? And they're predictable. We're not going to buy cyclical businesses and we're not going to buy startups and they're going to make at least 2 million. They're going to have a real management team, right? Like common sense things. And, and that's it. And Pat, I'm going to return all your money to you before I make a dollar. I'm obviously going to make a dollar on management fees. So I have a salary and I can hire a couple other people. And that's going to be the only way we live, right? It's going to be a little bit of a management. But the money that I take from you to go buy a janitorial business or whatever it is, we're not making a dollar in that business until you get all your money back. And that's it. And Pat, the other thing is the reason why I'm doing this, I'm, I don't have to do this to make money, right? I could retire if I wanted, as you know. Um, but the reason why I'm doing this is because I want to radically create amazing work environments. I want to infuse technology to make the processes better. I want to bless the people that work in those companies. And I want to actually use you, Pat, on making strategic introductions to open doors if we buy a B2B business, you know? And he's like, what about that? What about that? So how... Um how is the so how is your fund structured? So a lot of people have still I think are still trying to figure out how to do permanent hold models in funds, right? And so you end up with these kind of fund structures where it's like 30 years type type stuff, which is how you know some of the the more prominent funds out there have done stuff. Then there's like hold co models where people buy equity in the companies. That's that's to some extent what we did. Um, for our software business, like, so how, how are you guys structured? Is it in, in terms of how you put stuff together and, and there, and secondarily the economics for you kind of as the person doing all the work? Yeah. Well, first off, um, I didn't know a lick about the space. So there was a guy named Brent B. Shore. Um, he runs a company called Permanent Equity and I listened to every single podcast that he did and I learned a whole lot about it, um, through him. Um, and he's one of my best friends. I spoke to him this morning, actually, about the exact question that you just asked around around the different structures. Um, and so um, all credit goes to him for, for helping me figure that out. Um, but the way that we did it is I was just like, I just I just want to have a company that what that company does is it buys companies. Like the operations of this company is that it buys companies. And so my attorney told me, then just create an LLC. And that LLC is a company. It's not a fund. It's a holding company. And the operations of that holding company is it acquires other businesses. Um, and I'm like, well, how does that work if I bring on investors? They're like, well, they're just buying into the LLC and they just own a piece of the LLC. And so if you raise $50 million, which we raised a little over $50 million, but if you raise over, if you raise 50 million bucks and someone gives you $5 million, that investor then owns 10% of the holding company, right? And I'm like, well, how do I make money? And they're like, oh, 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 well, on a, well when you buy that A company, um, that guy that put in five of the 50 million that owns 10%, he owns 10% of that, of that 
whatever it is, that HVAC company, right? Or that accounting firm. He owns 10% of that accounting firm. And then once he gets his money back that, that was called down for that accounting firm, he now gets diluted by the percentage of ownership that you and your management team now get brought in. And that's the way it works. It's a holding company. They commit money to a holding company. That holding company calls the money down to buy other companies. And that's it. Um, and we don't have to buy and flip these. There's not a fun life. You know, we could hold them. We could just cash flow them. We have a shared services model that we have operations and finance and recruiting. Um, pretty soon we'll have technology. Um, and so um, that's the way it works. And then a- after we deploy all this capital, we will then just go ahead and raise more money into the holding company. And so you get paid. So you end up taking equity stakes in the subsidiaries or you don't you you do not have do not have equity at all in any of the the main companies or the subs. So we we our our investors, we use all their capital to purchase uh, the companies at, kind of look at them as the platforms underneath the Holdco. So we use their capital to purchase the platform under the Holdco. And then once they get all their money back on a Holdco, a, a platform by platform basis, we then show up on that ownership cap table saying, Hey, we're here, right? At our percentage, typical in private equity is 20%, right? So just say that we show up as a 20% owner saying, Hey, you used to own investors 100% of this of this accounting firm. Now you own 80% and we showed up because you got all your money back. So then after return of capital for the subsidiaries, then you guys show up on the cap table because it's much more advantageous for you to get paid as owners with through distributions and, and whatnot. Well, I guess it's all still ordinary income. So it doesn't really matter how you get paid. Yeah, it's actually the same. It's, it's, and we have a function. So let's just say that you're my, my $5 million investor. So you own 10% of the money that we raise. So we go buy a company and we have to put in 10 million bucks. So the call down is 20% of our fund. So I need to call down 20% of your $5 million. So I call down Gurley's $1 million of your five. And now that next year, I give you back at a cash flow of 200 and the next year, 200 and the next year, 200 and the next year, 200. That's the business stays fast. So over five years in that specific Example, we we are just living on our salary of our management fee, and you are getting recouped through cash flow of that business, right? 20% cash on cash returns, 25, whatever it is, you're finally getting recouped. So in five years, you got your million dollars back. On that sixth year, right? And depending on what multiple we bought the company at, if we put any debt and how they grew, right? Those three things, multiple debt and growth. Um, on that sixth year in this example, you now are still getting mailbox money. You still own your share of the company. It's just that there's now another person in the waterfall that is now getting, you know, a portion of the profit. So you were diluted by 20 X percent, right? So you were diluted by that, um, but you're still getting mailbox money. However, every five years, our management company, we come in with our auditing firm and our Q of E firm, and we, appraise the entire business. And we say, hey, 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 we bought this company for 4X and uh, now it's worth six because it's more EBITDA. We bought this company for five, now it's worth eight, right? And we let our investors know, hey, investors, um, you could actually sell, you could actually sell and liquidate some of your shares at what the current multiple or what the current price of our companies are worth. Do you want to do that or not? Totally up to you, right? If you don't, you just keep rolling and getting your 
cash flow distribution. If you do, it would be just like there was a private equity transaction, you know? So it's basically an internal secondary market. And where does that cash come from? Um, there's a there's a sequence. So first, it could come from GP. So uh, so me and my partners, we could buy them out through our own capital, our own cash flow. There could be a dividend recap. Um, there could be through the other LPs, right? So we could put it to the other shareholders and be like, hey, if you guys like this, you could actually buy Johnny's over here for six times, right? We could show you how the returns of that work, and you could own more equity. You know, if all of those say no, so no more sort of debt or dividend recap, no more GP wanting to buy, no more. LPs wanting to buy, then they could bring in the third party. The goal, though, that I tell everyone is, I hope you're not investing in Garden City to liquidate your shares in five to seven years. You know, I hope you're doing this for compounding kind of interest machine, you know? Yeah. So it's really smart. So they get, then if they do sell, they get long-term capital gains or because you're under 50, potentially QSBS as well. I don't even know. Um, which I guess, is that why you capped it at 50? Um, no, I... I have no clue what that is. <laughs> uh, it's called qualified. Okay. Anyway, sorry. I'll, sh I'll shut up. It's called qualified small business stock section 1202. If somebody sells, uh, sells, uh, own shares in a C corp, um, it's a very tax ad advantageous thing or an LLC tax as a C corp. Yeah. I know zero about that. I'm sorry. This is your interview. I will not be, I will not be spouting to you <laughs> some tax laws that I learned. Uh, it would be benefit. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk. We'll be BFFs about QSBS. It's, it's God's gift to, uh, it's God's gift to small business investors. So what, you know, as you, we're running out of time here, but, uh, you know, I'm curious as you look back over this journey, you know, what kind of learnings of this transition from W2 to being a fund manager, buying these type of companies, like what sort of things would you go back and tell, you know, 2020 you, Hey, like really, I wish you to, I wish you'd do this differently. It'll save you a lot of time or headache or make you a lot of money. Like, are there a couple of things that come to mind where you advise old you, Hey, you should definitely do this. Um, yes. There's a lot of mistakes that I make probably daily. Um, but one of the first things is that our, one of our strategies coming out of the gates was uh, we're going to reinvent how private equity finds deals. We're going to go out there and we're going to set up a bunch of um, a bunch of different systems to proprietarily reach out to business owners, right? And we put a lot of time, energy, effort, and money into that um, to reach out to roofing businesses or HOA companies or whatever industries that we liked. And we were like, hey, you know, we like to buy your business. Here's what we are. Here's how we're different. And boy, we got a lot of hits, a lot of hits. Um, and I was like, this is amazing. The activity is 10 out of 10. The response ratio is great. But it didn't mature to anything. Like after a year and a half, it didn't mature to any real deals. And I was like, why not? And then I realized it's because we were like, we, it's like knocking on someone's house, knocking on their door, like, hey, I want to buy your house. And then someone's like, you could come in. And we're like, oh, they're letting us in. They're letting us in. That means that they're clearly interested. And then we're like, can we look in the closet? AKA, can we see your financials? They're like, you can look in our closets here's our financials. I'm like, Oh, they're really serious. Like, like, man, this is a proprietary deal. It's going to be a slam dunk. And then all of a sudden we're like, okay, well, we're going to make you an offer. Okay. We're going to, you know, yeah, I'll make you an offer. And then we make them an offer. Like, cool. Thank you so much for telling me that my house is worth a million bucks or, or my business worth 10. We're like, yeah. So we're going to do a deal. I'm like, well, I'm not really interested in selling my house right now. Where am I going to go? Like you knocked on my door. I'm not interested in selling my business right now. And I'm like, wait, but we've been talking about all this or it's like, or I'm not sure my house is worth a million. Maybe I hire a realtor, AKA investment banker. It might be worth two. 
right? I'm like, well, why did you allow me in, right? Or there's not an impending event. So what we realized was after wasting so much time, energy, and effort, it's like, you need to find business owners that they themselves came to the point after many years being like, it's time to sell. I'm going to sell. I'm going to find out the value, right? And so that's a big lesson learned. I know search funders do it that way and some have success, right? But what we've realized is like, let's get all, all of our word out to people that buy, that sell businesses for a living and just let people know, like, we're not going to ping you business owners. If you're ready to sell, you ping us through accountants, lawyers, intermediaries, and so forth. So that was a huge, a huge lesson learned. Yeah. So shifting from doing campaigns towards the owners themselves, because you don't know who's actually really motivated and who's just kind of an inverse tire kicker and instead running campaigns. A lot of people inviting you in their house, showing you their goods, all to know that they feel, they feel seen. They feel they matter. That's like someone likes my business and you're just wasting so much time and money. So how do you, how do you go about running effective campaigns to intermediaries? So there's business brokers, accountants, lawyers, you mentioned, is that kind of the universe of folks? And what, what have you learned about doing that? Yeah, it's just, it's, it, it just takes a lot of energy and a lot of intentionality and setting up good processes. So we have someone on our team focused on that, that he used to work at investment bank and he was an IR before and corp dev and all that. And all he does is he figures out who are the top intermediaries, uh, kind of where we look to buy businesses, mainly in the Southeast, like t- from Texas all the way on over to Florida, you know? Um, so in the Southeast, looking for those uh, brokers and intermediaries, investment banks, letting them know who we are. And we're kind of weird. We're kind of like, hey, if you're going to send this out to 50 people, it's probably not going to work because we're not going to get into a bidding war. But if there is a business owner that cares deeply about his people or doing a simple transaction with no debt or cares about people buying and holding forever, send it to us. You know. And so we really try to stand out to like mentally put a nugget in these bankers' heads of like Garden City's different. And, and there is a lot of just reminding them and pinging them, you know? Um, so that's what we do is we really try to stand out to be different. So what are the tactics? Like, do you have a, do you have a set process that you run? I mean, what, what, like, could you walk me through what, like going from zero with a relationship with an intermediary like that? How do you get that to where that's like, do you have a process for that? How do you think about it? Or is it just like finding intermediaries that have done businesses that have sold businesses in the past? That's what we like blue and white collar service companies, right? Um, That are, you know, it's hard to find the exact transaction amount, but that's somewhere, you know, minimum 10 million all the way up to 50 million of enterprise value, right? 60, 70 million we could go up to, but finding companies that do white and blue collar service companies, finding intermediaries that um, are in that lower middle market of EBITDA between two and 7 million, right? So finding those, once we find those, go to their website. Once you go to their website, figure out who are the key people to reach out to. You probably don't wanna reach out to the managing director, Right. You probably want to reach out to kind of the director or VP or principal that is more kind of in the deal rather than the MD that is kind of bringing in, getting brought in to close the deal. He's not going to be too interested in hearing about your firm. Right. So figuring out the right person using different tools like Hunter IO or Zoom Info to figure out what their emails are. Right. Um, so you just type in the company name to see what their format is. Right. On how their emails are set up. Sending that person an email, letting them know, hey, I want to talk to you. We have a committed fund, blue and white service, family-owned companies, two to seven million of EBITDA, buy and hold, no debt. Here's our investors. Here's how we look to buy and grow and hold them, hold co-model, right? Um, have a call with them. 
and then just set them up on a drip campaign every kind of 60 to 90 days. Just, hey, don't forget about me. Hey, don't forget about me. So forth. Here you Okay. Very, very cool. Well, awesome, man. This has been super fun. I learned a lot. Hope, hopefully it was fun, it, even with all the insults. <laughs> how can how can our listeners um, be supportive of you? What would be what would be something helpful that that we could do as a group? And um, thank you for spending the time for us with us today. Yeah, thanks. Um, um, if you know any blue and white caller service companies, you know, uh, we pay $100,000 as a finder's fee, which is pretty un unusual. So anytime anyone sends us a business of our five, three of them have happened this way. People have sent us a business. We send them $100,000 finder's fee. Plus we also donate $25,000 to the charity of their choice. Um, and so that's what we do every time someone sends us a business. So if you ever come across a business that, you're, that you've come across that you don't think uh, works for you or too big or too small or anything like that at all, um, send it over to us um, on our website um, or send it to my email at michael at joingardencity.com. So we want people to join us on this journey that we're on. Um, if you know any good operators, we're, I mean, across our five companies, we're looking to hire controllers, operators, salespeople, et cetera. So people that are passionate about the space, uh, feel free to put them in our talent pool or our talent network on our website. Um, and if I could ever be of help, ping me. Super cool. All right, man. Well, thanks for being here. This was great. And uh, I think we'll be super educational and helpful for everybody. So um, thanks again. Thanks, man. Thank you all very much.